Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, that will be our first reading this morning. As Brother Benjamin said, we do have those who are traveling away from us. Our numbers are off just a little bit, but we do have visitors. And we are very grateful that you're here. And we'd like to invite you back any chance you have to come and worship with us. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up a series of lessons that we started several weeks ago, looking at the idea of helping us understand words in the Bible. What the point of this lesson or this series was to be is to take words that we read in the Bible, words that we probably don't use that often in our everyday conversations, and to help us understand what they mean. I believe that all the words that we've covered so far, we had an understanding of what they mean. We knew what the general definition was, but I think the problem sometimes is when we try to articulate what the definition is, when we try to describe and tell others about what these words mean, uh, that's where we can sometimes falter a little bit. So in this series, what I hope that we've done is helped us gain a better understanding, helped us be able to know what we're reading and to define these words that we've already said we don't use that often in our everyday conversations. Well, this morning as we wrap this series up, we're actually going to be looking at two words. And I'm also going to be breaking my preference. We're actually going to be having a part one in this lesson, and then, Lord willing, in a few hours we'll have part two and wrap this series up. But this morning what I want to look at are the words righteousness and holiness. Now, if you remember, I had planned on wrapping this series up the last time I presented on this, but this was a request from a couple of the members to look at these words, righteousness and holiness, and to help us understand and study these words more so that we can come to a better understanding of God's will for us. Very briefly, as a quick review, remember when we started this series of lessons, we looked at the word propitiation. And we saw that Jesus is our propitiation. He made that sacrifice. He atoned and redeemed us. He paid the debt that we couldn't pay. And so because Jesus is our propitiation, we can be sanctified, we can be justified, and we can be reconciled. None of those things we could do on our own, but through Jesus, we can be justified, sanctified, and reconciled. In our last lesson, we looked at the word consecrated. And that word is very similar to the words that we've already studied. But if you remember, the definition was to devote or dedicate to some purpose. That's what we're talking about when we say the word consecrate. And we looked at the priesthood. Back in the Old Testament, God expected Aaron and his sons, if they were going to serve as priests, if they were going to be ministers to the temple like they were supposed to be, God said they must consecrate themselves. And of course, the lesson for us is obvious. Today, as Christians, we are called to be a royal priesthood. We are called to be priests, not the Levitical priests of the old law, but we are called to be priests. And if we are going to be priests, then we too must consecrate ourselves. We must be consecrated. Well, as we think about the two words this morning, righteousness and holiness. If you were to go to the dictionary, holiness is defined as having a spiritually pure quality. That's what holy means. 
It means you are spiritually pure. You are sanctified, washed, justified. All of those words wrapped together, you are spiritually pure. That's what holy means. Now, what's interesting about this word, and most scholars will agree, that when you go back to the Greek language, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the words this morning. You can go and get an interlinear Bible if you would like to look up what these words are. But what's interesting, when you look at the original Greek language, most scholars will agree that the word defined or translated as holy is actually derived from another word. And what's interesting about the word that is derived from is that the word literally means an awful thing. The word translated holy is derived from another word that means awful thing. Now that's kind of interesting when you really think about it because you have an awful thing over here. That's what that word means. But the word translated as holy means spiritually pure. In the New King James Version, at least, and I believe in the other translations as well, the word holy is usually translated as holy or saint. Whenever you read the word saint, it's usually that Greek word that can be translated as holy. So that, uh, that there helps us understand about what this word is talking about. Someone who is a saint. Well, what does that sound like? Someone who has been sanctified. See how all these tie together? So when we put all of this together, what this is telling us is that the word that we define as holy, what it's telling us is that God took something that was awful. He took us when we were sinners. Remember, that's that awful thing. He took us when we were awful, and then he made us holy. He made us saints. He made us spiritually pure. That's what the word holy means. Well, let's look at the word righteous. Righteousness is a word that we've looked at quite a bit, but once again, if you go to the dictionary, righteousness would be defined as the quality or state of being just or rightful. They would also have in parentheses here, righteous. Well, that doesn't really help us define righteousness if they just says it means you're righteous. So if you were to go look up the word righteous... Righteous is defined as acting in an upright, moral way. Also could be used as virtuous. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the word righteousness. So holiness is spiritual purity. Righteousness is being right. It's being just. That's how we define these two words. Well, in our lesson this morning, what I want us to spend our time looking at is I want us to think about some things that holiness and righteousness are not. Things that the world, how they would define holiness and righteousness, and look in the Bible and see how sometimes the world's definition doesn't match up with the definition that we see in God's word. And a little bit of a preview in just a little bit. What we're going to see in our second lesson is we're going to look at what holiness and righteousness are. So this morning are not, a little bit later, what they are. So there are three things I want you to think about that holiness and righteousness are not. First, they are not based on emotions. Holiness and righteousness are not based on emotions alone. 
If you were to go into the religious world, into various denominations, and if you were to ask what holiness and righteousness are, so many would say, well, it's the feelings that I have. It's the emotions that I feel. That's how I know I'm holy. That's how I know I'm righteous because I get just such a high and emotional just feeling. It just overwhelms me during worship services. And so, so many people equate their spirituality with their emotional being. Years ago, I remember Brother Bob Waldron was preaching a lesson. And he talked about, he was talking to a young lady. And she said, I just feel so righteous. And he asked her, what does that mean? How do you feel? Oh, I just, I just feel so righteous. She couldn't explain it. And so he asked her and said, well, how do you know that's righteousness? You say you're feeling something, you're overcome with emotions, but you can't describe what it is. You can't tell me exactly how you feel, so how do you know for certain that that's righteousness? Brethren, righteousness and holiness is not built upon emotion alone. Now, that being said, let me make something very clear. Christians are going to feel emotions. God made us emotional beings. I had you turn to Romans chapter 12. I've told you this before, verses 9 through 21. I love the way that my Bible kind of entitles this section. Uh, My Bible just has, it says, behave like a Christian. And in these verses, Paul is going through and he's telling us all these things that we're going to do if we're truly following after Christ. Well, look in verse 15. Paul says that if we are Christians, if we are following Christ the way that we should, he says we will rejoice with those who rejoice and we will weep with those who weep. He says we're going to be of the same mind. We're going, to be, we're going to feel each other's pain. We're going to feel each other's joy. We are going to be emotional. We will have emotions. You think back in John chapter 4 and in verse 24. You remember in John chapter 4, this is where Jesus is talking to the, woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And as their conversation continues, eventually it comes to the idea of worshiping God. You remember that she is so focused on the where, because she asked him, well, where are you supposed to worship God? The Jews say down in Jerusalem, the Samaritans say Mount Gerizim, so so where is it? And Jesus makes the point, well, God is supposed to be worshipped in Jerusalem under the old law. But then he makes the point that the time is coming where it's not going to matter where, but it's going to matter how. How you worship God is going to be much more important than where. It doesn't matter if it's on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, if it's in Mount Gerizim in Samaria. It doesn't matter the physical location, but it's how you worship God. And in John 4, verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, I think that we... And I'm going to say we as the quote-unquote church of Christ, I think sometimes we have to be careful. Because we want to be so far away from the sensationalism, the emotionalism that we see in the denominational world, that sometimes we think that our worship services, we just sit here, we're very stoic, don't crack a smile. You know, just be very focused on it. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we turn this into a big production and you're here to be entertained like Brother Jeff talked about in his lesson. That's not what I'm saying at all. 
But if we sit there and try to divorce emotions completely from our service to God, I think that's wrong. We have to worship God according to truth, absolutely. But we have to have emotions as well. We have to have those feelings. If we don't, if we are completely unfeeling, uncaring, then I would suggest that maybe we're falling into the same trap as the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. You remember their problem, don't you? They were going through all the things right. They were testing the spirits. If someone said they were an apostle, they would test and make sure, but they had left their first love. Brethren, I think that that's something that we can easily fall into the trap. So let's make sure that we're not trying to separate ourselves so much that we just say, well, our worship services are going to be completely emotionless. That's not, what we should, that's not what we should do. But at the same token, we also don't go too far in the other direction and try to say that our holiness and righteousness is based solely on how we feel. There's a balancing act. There's a balancing act that we have to make sure that we're treading. God is spirit. You have to worship in spirit and truth. Because what we see is that emotions alone will not make us holy and righteous before God. They won't. Because often what you see when you see these emotional services, the preaching and the teaching, how would you describe it? In a service where it's all just emotional and you're trying to get people to feel good about themselves and you're just appealing to the raw emotion, is there really a lot of spiritual nourishment there? I think God talks about this in the Israelites because Israel had this problem. They only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. Go back to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. Remember, God sent the people prophets and seers. He tried to get them to return, but notice the attitude that the people had towards them. In chapter 30 and verse 10, it says, The people say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. See, I think that's the problem with preaching and teaching that is strictly based upon emotional power. All it is is smooth things. Things that appeal to the emotions. Things that just try to get people to, to have all of these feelings. What do we want to hear? What do we want preached? Because what we see oftentimes with the smooth preaching, and I think of things like the health and wealth gospel that's preached by so many today, there's no real spiritual nourishment there. There's nothing there that will support growth. Oh, sure, it may get people feeling good about themselves. It may get an emotional outburst. But is there true spiritual growth? Remember what Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Peter didn't say just go for the emotions. Peter didn't say, oh, it has to make you feel good. No, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You think about 2 Timothy chapter 4. As Paul is writing his last letter to his beloved son in the faith, 
You remember verse 1, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Because in verse 3, he says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Brother Jeff, when he was here on last Sunday, he talked about what is your auditory preference? What is your preaching and teaching preference? I think that's what this verse is asking here. What do we want to hear? Because if you want to hear somebody that's going to really just rile up the emotions and just really make you just feel all of the, all of the emotions and feelings, you can find that out in the world. Absolutely, you can find that. But does it truly lead to God? Holiness and righteousness are not based solely on emotions. It's interesting how many times in the Bible we read about how a Christian is supposed to exercise self-control. It's amazing how many times we read in the scriptures about when a worship service is described. Remember in Corinth, they had a problem with spiritual gifts. And just picture in your mind, or this is the picture I get, if you were to go to Corinth and you were trying to worship with them, well, you got one person over here, they're speaking in this language. you got someone over here speaking in another language. Someone back there speaking in a different language. All of them are trying to speak at the same time. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Well, why? Because God is not the author of confusion, right? That's confusing. You've got all of these people trying to do the same thing. You can't understand God is not the author of confusion. It's interesting how God multiple times tells Christians, you have to have self-control. One of the qualifications of an elder, they have to be temperate, sober-minded. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we often have what we call the Christian graces, right? How can we know if we're growing as a Christian? Well, Peter starts off in verse 5, for this very reason, giving all diligence at your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control. Do we let our emotions control us, or do we control our emotions? When it comes to holiness and righteousness, Yes, we are emotional beings. Yes, we do not divorce the entire idea that our worship to God is completely emotionless. But we don't let emotions control us because emotions alone do not lead to holiness and righteousness. Let me give you a second thing. They are not the same thing. This was an interesting discussion we had a couple of weeks ago. Where is holiness and righteousness the same thing? Well, let me make my point and my stance very clear. No, they are not the same thing. Now, they're very similar. They are absolutely very similar, but they're not the same thing. Let me make it very clear also my stance on something. You cannot be holy without being righteous. And I believe that the opposite is true as well. You cannot be righteous without being holy. Now, I don't just say that. Because I think the scriptures tell us this. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
First Peter chapter 1. Do you remember why the books of First and Second Peter were written? They were written during a time of great persecution. A time where the Christians needed to be encouraged not to fall back into the world. To not deny Christ. And so Peter, especially in 1 Peter, is really trying to encourage people to continue in the faith. And one of the things that Peter really harks on here in chapter 1 is holiness. In chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. From this passage right here, can anyone make the argument that God's expectation for his people is that we aren't to be holy? Is there any leeway or wiggle room here in these verses where we can say, you know, I just don't know if I'm supposed to be holy or not. Peter makes it very clear. You have to be holy. Christians are called to be holy. Well, why are we called to be holy? Because in verse 16 again, as it is written, be holy for I am holy. We make this point so many times. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be Christ-like. When we are going to be Christians, we are going to draw nearer to God. We are going to get further away from the world, and we are going to get closer to our Father. Well, if we want to be closer to God, what does he say? You have to be holy. Keep your finger here, but go back a few, chap- or a few books and go to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 14. The writer says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Brother, if there is any doubt in your mind as to the importance of holiness, as to whether or not as Christians we are called to be holy, let Hebrews 12 verse 14 put all those questions to rest. Without holiness, we will not see God. That's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? If we are not holy, if we don't have holiness, we will not see God. Well, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what holiness is. We are called to be holy. Well, if we're called to be holy, how are we holy? Well, if we go back to verse 15, notice what he said. He said, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Holy is a state of being, right? Holy is a quality that we gain. We are spiritually pure. Now we'll get in just a moment. It's not of ourselves. Righteousness is the behavior that results in holiness. Because we are holy, we are righteous in our conduct. Let me show you a few more verses. 
Go over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, notice in verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which they were delivered, or to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now let's put this together. Peter says you are holy because of your conduct. Here Paul says who you present your bodies to serve. You're a slave. You're a servant. You're either a servant of sin. Your conduct is representative of sin. Or you're a slave of obedience or righteousness. Do you see the connection here? You're called to be holy and your conduct, who you present yourself to serve, that is going to show who you're a slave to, who you're a servant to. Are you a servant of righteousness? It's interesting in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. We use this verse, these verses so much, and there are so many applications. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God, absolutely. It makes the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Yes. If we call something a good work, it must be authorized from the Scriptures. But sometimes I think we skip the middle part. And not that we skip it, but, you know, we're so focused on all Scripture is inspired by God. Yes. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good works. Yes. Don't forget the middle all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you see the connection here? All Scripture tells us, it instructs us as to what righteousness is. And when we receive that instructions, what do we do with it? Well, we're equipped unto every good work. It's our conduct. It's what we do. Holiness and righteousness, they're very similar, but they're not the same. So they're not based on emotion alone. They're not the same. Let me give you one more. They are not achievable by us. They are not achievable by us. We cannot make ourselves spiritually pure. We cannot make ourselves right or virtuous on our own. Remember what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3? We've looked at this passage so much in this lesson. But in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not a single person here is righteous on their own 
account. By their own deeds, no one is righteous. A few verses down, Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all under sin. None of us are spiritually pure because of sin. Do you remember how Paul tells the Ephesians, how he describes it in Ephesians 2 and in verse 1? He talks about you. This is talking about everybody, Jews and Gentiles. He, speaking of God, Jesus, he made alive because you used to be dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. There was no life in you. There was no hope. You couldn't do anything by yourself. Not of works, verse 9, lest anyone should boast. No righteous act that we could do would make us alive again. There was nothing that we could offer to God to make atonement, to redeem ourselves. There was nothing that we could do. But verse 5. I want to actually start in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Only through Jesus can we have holiness and righteousness. Only through his blood. Drop down to verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus brings us back to God. Remember that word reconciled? That's what reconciled means. To put back in friendly relations. That's what Jesus does. We couldn't do it ourselves. Only Jesus could. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We cannot achieve holiness and righteousness by ourselves. God expects us to be holy and righteous. Once again, not based upon emotion. An emotional feeling does not equate holiness or righteousness. They're not exactly the same thing. (coughs) They're very similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. We'll look at this more in our, Lord willing, in our second sermon. Without Jesus, they're unobtainable. We wouldn't have access to righteousness and holiness without Christ. So I think the invitation is obvious. Are we living a life for ourselves? Or are we living a life for Christ? Are we following His example? Are we truly being Christians? Like I said, Lord willing, in our next lesson, we'll look at what holiness and righteousness are. And so that's what we'll be looking at in our our next lesson.
But this morning, if you're here, and you recognize that there are things that are separating you from the holiness and righteousness that Jesus offers and that God offers through Jesus, we offer an invitation. If you're here this morning and you've never been put into Christ, remember how we talked about holiness and righteousness are in Christ? Well, if you're not in Christ, then you don't have holiness. You don't have righteousness. And the only way to be put in Christ is through baptism. Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. We'll look at that in our next lesson. But this morning, if you're here and there are things separating you from God, there are things that we can do to help, to pray with you, to pray for you, to do whatever we can. If you're here this morning and you're subject to that invitation, will you let us know as we stand and as we sing this song?